Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word that is so true, that is so real, and that is so comforting. Pray God as we open up the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, that God you will make clear to us the passage that is in front of us. And keep our hearts tender so that we can respond to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, once again, a very good morning, and uh, it was a joy to see our sister uh, Chai Fong and also Angeline from OMF, and um, I look forward to hearing from them about the ministry uh, that OMF is doing. This morning, we are looking at Second Thessalonians chapter two, um, and I want to begin with this question for us: What do Christians long for in times of suffering? Let me say that again: What do Christians long for in times of suffering. I believe we long for relief from the difficulties that we are experiencing, be it trials, be it temptations, be it suffering, be it persecution because of our faith, or the discouragement, the physical ailments, the emotional struggles, the losses that we may have because we are in a fallen world. What do Christians long for in times of suffering, we hear this longing for relief from Christians who are going through a hard time. Sometimes we even hear this uh, being mumbled uh, from from children, from students who have yet another exam, um, the taunts and thistles of life, isn't it? Sometimes we hear this longing for relief from Christians who are persecuted. Sometimes we hear this longing for relief from our own lips. What do we long for in times of difficulties? We long for relief. We long for comfort. We long for Jesus to return. So this morning as we come to 2 Thessalonians 2, we are reading a letter, in fact a passage, to the Thessalonica church, the Thessalonian Christians. They are longing for Jesus to return where they can finally be gathered around the Lord because they have experienced persecution in their faith. We read this in Acts 17 last week, that from day one they became Christians, uh, they were beaten up. They longed for relief from troublemakers. Last week we read this, and let me read this to you from chapter 1 again. Paul said this to the Thessalonian Christians. Chapter 1, 6, 7. God is just, He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire and his powerful angels. You know, the promise of the Lord's return to bring justice and relief is central to the Christian faith, both to the Thessalonians and to us. Because without this promise, we are undone. Without this promise, we lose everything. Without this promise of the Lord's return and the gathering of us, we will not be able to take another step as a Christian. But it is on this basis, on this hope of the Lord's return and His gathering of His people, that Christians are able to face trials, persecution, even death. And this is the hope that we all have and we live by. In fact, this is the hope that we encourage one another when we are going through difficult times. When you see a sister or a brother in, in trouble, this is the hope that we speak about, isn't it? In fact, Paul has said this in First Thessalonians, his first letter. This is what Paul said. He said, 
For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are the words that we use to encourage each other in difficulties, in times where we are looking forward and finding out what is left ahead of us. But you know, something terrible happened as we look at Second Thessalonians 2 because um, while Paul is away, um, there were rumors that goes around the church that, hey, you know what? Actually, Jesus has already come. And that troubled the, the Thessalonian church. Because that means that if Jesus has come and they are not aware, then there is no relief. There is no gathering. There is nothing. In fact, it's even more troubling because the rumor says that Paul himself has said that the Lord has come. And it's with this and this context that we come to look at this chapter. In fact, let me read the first three verses of chapter 2 for us. This is what Paul says. Concerning the coming of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the, Lord, the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Now, we, we know this, that when Christians are under trials and persecution, it is easy to become discouraged and even swayed by false teachings. Christians under trials can become vulnerable. I don't know if you feel that, but this is what happens when we are vulnerable and this is no difference from the Christian in Thessalonica church because they hear that, hey, perhaps the Lord has come and they start to feel unsettled, especially it comes from the Apostle Paul himself. You know what, perhaps someone has given a prophecy, Jesus already uh, returned, or someone has come claiming that he came from Paul and he said that the Lord has returned, or perhaps someone has forged a letter in Paul's name to say the Lord has returned. In fact, Paul is so concerned, at the end of this letter in chapter 3, this is what Paul ends off his letter with. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. This is what Paul says as he ends off. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguished mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So Paul is saying, look at this letter. This is my signature. Check out the others, because I always end of my letter this way. And so Paul is concerned because this is the news that they are getting and he um, brings to them three important things in the first three verses. He says that Christians, you are not to be easily unsettled. You are not to be easily unsettled. Number two, you are not to be alarmed by false teaching. And number three, you are not to be deceived because the Lord has not returned. In fact, verse 3 says this, That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction or the son of destruction, depends on your, uh, your um, Bible version. What Paul is trying to say is this, The Lord, 
He will not come quietly. Because when He returns, it will be a time of great rebellion and a time of lawlessness. The Lord will not appear so quietly that you missed it out. In fact, He mentions two things. The Lord will not come un- until rebellion occurs and until the man of lawlessness is being revealed. Now the question is, how do we understand this man of lawlessness? Um, to, to better understand what the man of lawlessness actually means, I'm going to try to um, take three steps to help us to think about this man of lawlessness. The first one is, what kind of character is the man of lawlessness, which is in verse 4, and what can we make out of this man of lawlessness? And then the third one is, what is Paul's purpose of talking about this man of lawlessness? So what I need you is kind of uh, flex your brain muscles for a few minutes, and uh, hopefully you get some dividends out of this uh, difficult uh, topic on the man of lawlessness. So um, just flex it for a few minutes, um, and then you'll get some muscles out of it at the end. So look at verse 4 with me first. First of all, the characteristics of this man of lawlessness. Verse 4 tells us this. He's a man who opposes. He's a man who exalts himself. He's a man who sets himself up in God's temple. He's a man who declares himself God. So this man of lawlessness represents everything that opposes God. So this is the characteristics of the man of lawlessness. But what can we understand of this uh, man of lawlessness? Because at first instance, what we're going to do is start to speculate. Uh, right, who is this man of lawlessness? We start reading our newspaper and say, oh, I think it might be this guy, right? He's been on newspaper, he's dubious. Or we start to uh, look at the political scene or the religious scene and we start to kind of second guess who might this uh, man of lawlessness is. In fact, you know, this topic is very interesting. uh, It's very interesting because a lot of churches, when they talk about it, we always feel that we're almost certain that the man of lawlessness will appear in our generation because it's probably the worst that the world has ever seen. But in fact, the reality is that the only generation or the only severity of terror that we can experience is our own generation. We're never in a situation where we can fully and totally compare ourselves that we are worse off than the previous generations or that we are worse off than the generations that is to come if there isn't, if there is even any. So what we have is our generation and when we read about men of lawlessness or when we read about Antichrist, we start to kind of think, is he going to happen in my time? In fact, all through the centuries, people have given countless attempts to decipher what exactly is this man of lawlessness, who he is. Um, Some people call him the Antichrist. And uh, they start to speculate when is the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness will appear because then you can speculate if Jesus is going to come, isn't it? Uh, We have it in World War I, we have it in World War II, we have it even the Reformation time. So you'll not be surprised as you read that people think that Hitler was uh, kind of the, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, or Stalin, or perhaps in uh, Martin Luther or the Reformers' time, the Pope was the Antichrist. Um, but as we look here that Paul, when he speaks about the man of lawlessness to his first readers, uh, this is actually not how it looks like. An informed Jewish Christian when he hears Paul talking about the man of lawlessness, 
the first thing they do is not to look ahead, to speculate. They start to look back and see, this sounds a bit familiar to me. Because Paul, they will notice that Paul is actually using some Old Testament passages or terminologies. Paul is using words or imageries that are too close for comfort. So let me draw us back to how the Thessalonians would have kind of think about this as Paul uh, talks about the man of lawlessness. Um, for example, in, in some of the Old Testament passages, this is what um, is written in Daniel chapter 11, if I have the passage there. This is what uh, Daniel speaks about. He says of a king, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined must take place. He will show no regards for the gods of his ancestors or the one who desi- desired by women. Nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. And then there is a similar kind of language spoken about the king of Tyre in the book of Ezekiel. This is what Ezekiel says. Son of man said to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, In the pride of your heart you say, I am God. I sit on the throne of a God in the hearts of the sea. But you are a mere mortal, not a God, though you think you are as wise as the gods. And this goes on, there are more. In Isaiah, uh, talking about king of Babylon, this is what Isaiah writes, You say in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens, I will rise, raise my throne above the stars, of God, I will sit and throne on the mountain of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon, which is the mountain of the Canaanites. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. No, in fact, as the Jews they, in the first century, they listen to this, um, their own history uh, reminds them of tyrants who sounded just like the men of lawlessness, tyrants who have opposed God, who have made themselves God, and who declare that there's no other gods but them. Um, there was this um, emperor by the, um, by the name Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, in just 135 BC. He was called the divinely manifested one. So he, he desecrated the temple of God, he sacrificed pigs on it, and he wanted to build an altar for other gods. And he forces the Jews to renounce their religion. And that's where you hear the Maccabeans and all these other histories of the Jews that their revolt comes because people declared themselves not just king but God in God's temple. And then there was that Roman general Pompey who conquered the Judean in the 63 BC. And of course the imperial cults of Julius Caesar the Divine uh, and um, erected there by his son, adopted son Augustus. But you know what, even closest to the Thessalonians' time, just 41 AD, around that time, they have the Emperor Caligula. He's known as the worst tyrant of that time. Even his uh, horse get put into the ruling governance. Uh, He called himself God, and he wanted people to worship him as God. So the list can go on, but recognize as Paul writes about the man of lawlessness, um, the, the readers of that time, they have plenty of pictures that start coming up from the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, it's so uncomfortable because it's too close to heart, isn't it? Um, so what they are hearing is not meant for them to become even more unsettled and start speculating who is the man of lawlessness. What Paul wants them to realize 
is to be comforted and recognize that while Christians you are suffering, it means that Christ has not come. That while you are suffering, you should be excited because the Lord's coming and judgment will be coming. The Lord will not come silently. The Lord will come and reveal rebellion and lawlessness. So Paul's intention as we look at this passage is not to further unsettle the Christians or to ask them to speculate about the man of lawlessness, but rather to recognize the Lord has clearly not returned. Suffering increases our hope. Does it make sense to you? But here, suffering increases our hope that Christ will come soon. For on the day of the Lord's return, the great rebellion, the lawless one, will be revealed. It will not be a quiet affair that someone might miss up because he's in the toilet or he's kind of doing something else or be left behind. At this point, before God's final revelation, the perfect kingdom that comes, the perfect comfort to come, um, before it happens, Christ has not come and Christ's kingdom has not come. But now we want to ask this question because this is a favorite question whenever we talk about Antichrist or man of lawlessness. So is there that one man of lawlessness that will appear that will kind of trigger Jesus uh, to return? Is there such a man of lawlessness to which uh, I actually find it hard to second guess as well. Uh, right? Um, I don't know. But for the Thessalonians, many like the lawless men of lawlessness have come and have gone. We ourselves in our history, our church history, our missions history, we have seen many men of lawlessness that have come and have gone. But perhaps uh, something that Paul, uh, John, the Apostle John writes, will be helpful for us. And I'll read this to what um, to us what John talks about uh, about the Antichrist. He says this in John chapter two. He says this, dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. But even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know the last hour. Now, while Christians were tempted to look for that one Antichrist, John is saying, look, look, there are a lot of Antichrists that are already doing the works of the evil one. You know, an important early church father by the name Chrysostom, in fact, John Calvin likes to use Chrysostom. He's, he's an important early church father, and he's homely in this chapter of Thessalonians. He said, um, let us not speculate who is the Antichrist. Instead, we should understand Paul's letter and avoid deception. Let me say that. Instead of trying to speculate who is the Antichrist, we are to read Paul's letter and be guarded and avoid deception. As with the Thessalonian brothers and sisters, we are not meant to spend our time speculating who or what is the man of lawlessness in order to second-guess the Lord's return. Instead, we are to guard against deception. We are reminded not to be alarmed by false teachings and rumors that Christ has already come. So dear brothers and sisters, as we face difficulties... When we are vulnerable, let us be careful not to be deceived by scams and heresies that Jesus has written. We must not give up persevering and we, because Christ has not come. And we must not start looking around for rumors that claim that heaven is now because Christ has not come. 
We are vulnerable and we want kingdom to come now, blessings to come now, wealth to come, health, everything to come now, but be careful because Christ has not come. Do not be alarmed by heresies. Instead, hold on to the promise that Christ, He will return in power and we will be gathered to Him. Do not be alarmed. Do not lose sight and do not lose our hope. Now the question then is this. If this is the case, how should we respond to the life that we are experiencing as we see evil, as we see um, all kinds of injustice happening? Paul's answer is this. Don't panic. Don't panic. We should expect them because the Lord has not returned. Look at verse 5 to 7. This is what Paul says. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him, the lawless one, back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. Now, as you read this, you realize that Paul is not leaving his readers much time to ponder or speculate who is the man of lawlessness. Instead, Paul simply reminds his readers of the present realities. Look, look at verse 7. Whether the, this man of lawlessness is ready or here, has not come, or is figurative of all antichrist, the reality is this. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Even right now, the hidden power of lawlessness is ready working in our world. The world may not recognize the lawless work, the, the, the act of lawlessness, but nevertheless is in full operation. Now we see this power working all the time, and we are not to be surprised. For example, as we see that morality uh, is kind of evolving. You, you, you realize that we cannot tell another person that you have sinned. It's kind of a taboo. You can tell someone, I think this is not legal here. But who are we to tell someone that this is morally wrong? You can tell them you are legally wrong, but not morally. And, and we can, in, in this time, we can still enjoy new birth. We celebrate new birth. But you know what? We despise the way that God has used traditional marriage to bring about birth. You see that the world has kind of shifted in all its ways and we, we cannot point it out or declare it as lawlessness in God's eyes. There are more that we can talk about, but um, the power of lawlessness at work, what it's actually trying to do and what it's really doing is to bring us away and sets us against God. This is what the works of lawlessness is doing, and we must be careful. We must be careful of the ideas, the beliefs that influence our minds, our hearts, our culture, and even our churches. So let me say this again, that Paul, he does not elaborate much at this point about the, who the man of lawlessness is. He's simply saying, remember I've already spoken about this to you during the few weeks that I was able to be with you in Acts 17. You know who is ho- what, what is holding back the lawless one. But the day will come, look at verse 8, the day will come when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Paul's focus in this passage to the Christians, first of all, not to be alarmed because Jesus has not come and not to be surprised by evil because the world 
has the lawless work uh, in place. So in a sense, the lawless one is already at work and there's no point trying to speculate who is the lawless one or what is the lawless one. It's not our business to speculate. But, but imagine with me this, right, that you're in an airport, we're all in an airport, we're all at ground level, God is sitting at the control tower. What He has communicated to us is the lawless works are already in place. It's already happening. And He says nothing more. He knows who is the lawless one or what it means and He will reveal it when the time comes. But His purpose of revealing it on that final day in verse 8 is so that Jesus will also be revealed to bring judgment upon those who are against Him. In fact, Paul has explained uh, this uh, uh, in chapter 1, that behind this power of lawlessness, there is a greater power that's in control of everything. That's in chapter 1. Let me just read uh, verse 6 to 7 with us again. And notice what is Paul's focus. He says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. You know, there's no ambiguity actually in this letter of Paul's intent. First of all, his intention is tell them, do not be alarmed, Christ has not come. Do not be surprised, the works of lawlessness is already happening. And lastly, he says, be warned, because Jesus will return. And that's where we look at the last few verses, verse 9 to verse 12. Let me read verse 9 to verse 12 for us again. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Verse 11, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now from the lawless one or from the power of lawlessness, Satan will display his power to deceive and to draw people away from God. The warning here again is not about who might be the lawless one but the works that he does will reflect the works of Satan. He will use all sorts of power, of signs, of wonders to establish intentional lies. He will be the expert in evil ways to deceive those who are perishing. And people will be deluded and ultimately face the judgment when Jesus comes. Now the question then is, alright, so how will a person be deceived? Uh, Look at verse 10. How does Paul explain this? How will a person be deceived? Let me read to you verse 10. He says, All the ways that wickedness deceive those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. How does this look like in action? The most natural thing uh, for a person who delight in wickedness is actually to reject truth. The most natural thing for someone who delights in um, lies are to reject what is real. To reject God who revealed Himself, to reject His gospel of salvation in Jesus, to refuse to acknowledge that we are sinners who deserve judgment, who refuse to turn from our own sins and self-centered ways. Now, when we do not love truth, you know what happens? 
wickedness become attractive. Let me say that again. When we do not love truth, at some point wickedness becomes attractive. To embrace a convenient or in fact self-serving God that we make out of our own imagination. doesn't matter what name we call this God. It's something that we create out of our own self-serving imagination. To reject the gospel of salvation, to refuse to turn from our sinful, self-centered ways, to refuse to bow our knees to God and to Jesus and to go after what our itching ears want to hear and believe. You know, if we do not love the truth and so be saved, we'll be attracted to wickedness and so be deceived by the ways of lawlessness. So there are only two ways about it. It's either we love the truth and be saved, or we become attracted to wickedness um, and what it has for us. You know, someone gave this quote, I thought it is it's so interesting and so true. If you delight in tr- wickedness, if you delight in wickedness, then truth is a luxury you cannot afford. Let me say that again. If you delight in wickedness, you delight in the wicked things, then truth is a luxury you cannot afford. You, you, can't, you can't have both. You want this, you can't have this. You can't say, ah, this is great if you want to embrace this. And so this is how it looks like. Now the deception from Satan can come from outside, but it can also come from inside the church. Just as um, the heresy that sips into the Thessalonica church through the forgery of Paul's letter, so can power, science, and wonder sip in in the forgery and by the name of God when it is no God at all. In order to serve the lie, in order to deceive those perishing and delude those who reject the truth. You know what? Paul is not alone when he's talking about this. In fact, Matthew himself records the Lord's words uh, in Matthew 4, 24. Let me read to you what it says. Matthew 24. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive. You know what? What better way to deceive than to create a counterfeit Messiah? Than to create a counterfeit Jesus, in fact, using miracles, wonders, and signs. At the root of it, it's not about God or Jesus, but the signs and wonders and just placing a name of whatever it is uh, can deceive. Therefore, we should not be surprised that we can hear or we can even witness powers, signs, and wonders that will draw great numbers for its lie. Satan and those following him will use all sorts of display, all ways of wickedness to present lies and deceive those who do not love the truth. Let me read verse 9 to and 10 again for us and see that it is Paul's words in saying this. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. So for us Christians, what will prevent, what will prevent us from being deceived? We'll hear more of that in two weeks' time in the rest of Second Thessalonians 2. But in this passage, this is what Paul answers. Look at verse 10. The way for us to prevent, to be prevented from deception is by loving God's truth. By loving God's truth. 
So the question today as we kind of round up for our brothers, for us brothers and sisters is, do you and I love God's truth? Does God's truth satisfy you and me? Or are we still, or are we easily drawn to new teachings for the hearsays of miracles and signs and wonders that will draw us away from God? You know, as we go through difficulties in life, and we will, and as the cost of being a Christian increases in our culture, we will become more vulnerable and we can hear of more solutions to our sufferings. But in the time like this, let us keep loving God's truth. Let us keep testing everything with scriptures. Let us not be alarmed by false teaching. Let us not be surprised by the existing works of lawlessness. And let us be warned of the lies that are hid by God's enemies and those who will delight in wickedness. But for those of us, perhaps we have not believed in Jesus, can I then appeal to you? Can I appeal to you to examine God's word and to see that it is something that is worth everything, that the time is still here, that Christ has not returned, that we can receive and we can love this truth. We'll hear more about this in the, in the second part, probably, of Second Thessalonians 2. But uh, this is where I want to end off. And let me end off that let us choose the testament of Jesus and let us choose life. Because verse 12 ends off this way. All will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. May we delight in God's truth and not the deception of wickedness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ's coming will be certain and Christ's coming will not be missed. We will see Christ when He returns. But Father, help us to see with delight when Christ comes because we love the truth and we long for Christ. Let us not be those who are unprepared and are shocked that judgment comes with Christ. So Father, this morning as we look at this difficult passage, we pray God that you will help us not to be shaken easily and not to be surprised easily and help us to hold firm to the truth that you have already given us. For the glory and for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.